as we listened to the prophet as he opened this conference, I was reminded that the inspiration and direction of prophets over the years had given us foreknowledge of what was to come in the future. In this dispensation, our day, a book of prophetic utterances is channeled earthward to us. The prophet Joseph Smith said, One of the most important points in the faith of the Church of Latter-day Saints through the fullness of the everlasting gospel is the gathering of Israel, of whom the Lamanites constitute a part. In a proclamation of the Twelve Apostles of the Restored Church in 1845, we are told, speaking of the Lamanites of North and South America, they will also come to the knowledge of their forefathers and of the fullness of the gospel, and they will embrace it and become a righteous branch of the house of Israel. President Brigham Young, speaking of the conversions of the Lamanites, said, Look to see them like a flame of fire, a mighty rushing torrent like the grand march of angels. John Taylor expressed this thought. The same organization of priesthood must be introduced and maintained among the house of Lehi as amongst those of Israel gathered from among the Gentile nations. President Wilford Woodruff penetrated the future and revealed... Zion is bound to rise and flourish. The Lamanites will blossom as the rose on the mountains. Every word that God has ever said of them will have its fulfillment, and they, by and by, will receive the gospel. It will be a day of God's power among them, and a nation will be born in a day. Now may we consider the book of Revelations of today as shared with us by the present prophet, President Spencer W. Kimball. Quote, The Lamanites must rise in majesty and power. Unquote. This prophetic statement was made on October 3, 1947 when in Central America we had less than 100 members, and in that great land of Mexico fewer than 5,000, half of whom were in the Mormon colonies. The Lamanites must rise in majesty and power, I repeat. The less than 100 in Central America when these prophetic words were uttered has blossomed into more than 40,000 as of today. From the fewer than 5,000 in Mexico at that time, a rich harvest of over 150,000 stand tall in the field white, all ready to harvest. The total membership of 1947 that represents harvest of a pair of months today. To continue the statement of President Kimball, quote, We must look forward to the day when they shall have economic security, culture, refinement, and education, when they shall be operating farms and businesses and industries, and shall be occupied in the professions and in teaching. When these words reached our ears in 1947, it wouldn't have required the fingers of one hand to number the professional people in the Church in Mexico and Central America, or the number of cars owned, or the number of homes with modern conveniences. They shall be operating farms, President Kimball said. One state president manages a complex of seven farms with over four hundred thousand chickens. President Kimball continues, business and industries not occupied in the professions and in teaching. Listen to this list describing state presidencies, high councilmen and bishops in the Mexico City area, architects, attorneys, engineers of agronomy, biochemical, mechanical, 
aeronautical, petroleum, topographical, civil, electrical, doctors of medicine, including surgeons, dentists, nurses, business managers, tailors, carpenters, building contractors, teachers, school administrators, pediatricians, auto mechanics, business machine repairmen, blacksmiths, insurance agents, farmers, some very humble. And the list goes on and on. To match this rise this, in this rising nation, the birthplace of one of the largest refineries in Latin America rests within view of ancient Toltec statuary, waiting to process encased rivers of oil propelled for hundreds of miles over mountains and across valleys. An electric generating complex sufficient to produce comfort for many cities is pushing into the sky beside the remains of ancient civilizations that reached a peak of peace toward which we are striving. And President Kimball now continues, quote, When they shall be organized into wards and stakes of Zion, end of quote. Fifteen stakes organized in one day. Many more in the wings awaiting polishing and final approval. Hermanos de México y América Central, favor de ponerse de pie. These brethren represent leadership from 31 states and 171 wards and branches. If we were to add the nine missions, 38 districts and 215 branches, we'd have a total of 456 units of the church in this one part, Mexico and Central America, of the Lord's vineyard that is producing fruit abundantly. Yes, approaching 200,000 eternal spirits clothed in mortal body. There stands living evidence of prophecy being fulfilled. Muchas gracias, hermanos. Pueden sentarse. As I recently stood upon the banks of the Pacific Ocean, for moments I watched the waves and the tide move and reach upon the sandy beach, with fingers stretching to points untouched since yesterday. As the surge of power of the deep lifted higher and higher the marks upon the sand, a remembrance of promises to children whose memories dulled by distance and time, who are also reaching, yearning, deserving of heights not reached since many yesterdays, but now responding with promises propelled from an inner power as ceaseless as the waves and the tide, will deservedly be lifted through meritorious service back to heights of yesterdays, to goals unattained except in memory. President Kimball, the Lord has blessed your prophetic utterances with fulfillment. How did he know who gave him the power to pierce the future? What dropped the shackles of fear from his tongue? Prophets are not discerned by intellectual processes. These statements of today have not been presented in proof that President Kimball is a prophet. They are but outward evidences of an inward power. No, not proof for, but a testimony of divine powers linked with the source of all eternal truth. As the Lord instructed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their inspiration was guarded for our day, 
as Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, and others recorded Holy Writ. Even so, a prophet speaks today. I witness there is a prophet of the Lord in the land, not unlike those of olden times, not dressed in sandals and long robes of ancient times, but with power, vision, and far-sightedness for today and tomorrow. The Lord is our light. That light comes through the prophets. This I testify in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I hope you felt of the sweet spirit of this primary chorus that has blessed this meeting. Did you hear of their message? Did you hear what they said? I wonder when he comes again, will I be ready there to look upon his loving face and join with him in prayer? The prophet Alma said, Little children have words given unto them many times which confound the wise and the learned. I'm sure we've heard, seen an example of that here this day. A few hours after President Kimball ordained and set me apart, I traveled to meetings in Norfolk, Virginia. My soul was still filled with wonderment. But as I entered the meeting room of a regional conference of young adults, they were singing, I need thee every hour. They had heard of my call. These young people knew my need, knew how deeply I needed the help of the Lord. My heart was overflowing with emotion as I tried to join them as they sang, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. The weight of this new calling and the responsibility to which you have just sustained me would be overwhelming were it not for my knowledge of the Savior. I have prayed daily for a deeper understanding of the Master as I prepare for this sacred responsibility of being a special witness to all the world. His words seem clearer to me now. He said, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace in me. Thou shalt declare repentance and faith on the Savior, he said, and remission of sins by baptism and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. The Savior said, Arise and gird up your loins, take up your cross, follow me, and feed my sheep. The Savior's declaration, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, now has a more profound meaning to me. It is not only my desire, but my sacred obligation to help others to know and to understand this. Times have changed since Christ's true and only church was restored to the earth. But today the needs are the same, and the promise is assuring. Listen to this. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. And ye shall receive me, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Our challenges are the same. When he said, Thou shalt preach the fullness of my gospel, which I have sent forth in these last days, the covenant to recover my people. Again I say unto you, Hearken and hear and obey the laws which I shall give unto you. The Master's instructions to us 
given then are the same to today. And now, behold, I give unto you a commandment that when ye are assembled together, ye shall instruct and edify each other, that ye may know how to act and direct my church. And ye are taught from on high. He went on to say, Sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be endowed with power. His promises are clear to us today. If thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge. And then that great promise, And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Just as I have been instructed and counseled by President Kimball, others through the years have so been counseled. 146 years ago, when the church was restored, the first presidency instructed Parley P. Pratt, a newly called member of the Twelve, O Lord, smile from heaven upon this thy servant. Forgive his sins, sanctify his heart, and prepare him to receive the blessings. Increase his intelligence, communicate to him all that wisdom, that prudence, and that understanding which he needs as a minister of righteousness. Magnify the apostleship whereunto he is called. And continuing, they said, and you have enlisted in a cause that requires your whole attention. Become a polished shaft. You must endure much toil, much labor, and many privations to become perfectly polished. Your labor must be incessant and your toil great. You must go forth and labor till the great work is done. Your heavenly Father requires it. The field is his, the work is his, and he will cheer you and buoy you up. Beware of pride, they continued. Beware of evil. Shun the very appearance of it. You will see thousands who, when they first see you, will know nothing about salvation by Jesus Christ. Cultivate humility. Beware the flatterers of the world. Let your ministry be first. Remember the souls of men are committed to your charge. They went on to, to say to Parley P. Pratt, it is necessary that you receive a testimony from heaven so that you can bear testimony to the truth of the Book of Mormon. Strengthen your faith. You are called to preach the gospel of the Son of God to the nations of the earth. It is the will of your heavenly Father that you proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth and the islands of the sea. Be prepared at all times to make a sacrifice of your life should God require. Be always prayerful. Be always watchful. This gospel must roll and will roll until it fills the entire earth. You will need a fountain of wisdom, knowledge, and intelligence such as you never had. God can endow you without worldly pomp, or great parade. You must proclaim the gospel in its simplicity and its purity. Now I know by the power of the Spirit that this direction and counsel given under the inspiration of the prophet Joseph Smith, which was meant for the brethren in those days, is also meant for us. These eleven chosen servants I now have the honor to be associated with have not only placed their all on the altar, but they live lives in righteousness and complete dedication. I hope to follow them and to emulate their example. I love each of them. I love the First Presidency and all of the general authorities. I feel a warmth to my soul when I'm in their company. Of the twelfth of the twelve, President Joseph F. Smith said, These twelve disciples of Christ 
are supposed to be pioneer witnesses of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. It is not permissible for them to say, I believe. I have accepted it simply because I believe. The Lord informs us that they must know. They must get the knowledge for themselves. It must be with them as if they had seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and that they know the truth. That is their mission, to testify of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead and clothed now with the almighty power at the right hand of God, the Savior of the world. That is the doctrine and the truth that is their duty to preach to the world and to see that it is preached to the world that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God and was authorized and qualified to lay the foundation of the kingdom of God. I know that the spirit of revelation is, an, is as essential for us today as it was for the twelve during the Savior's earthly ministry. There occurred an incident which some writers regard as a culminating point of the Savior's ministry. You recall he asked the twelve two momentous questions. First, he asked, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The apostles spoke words of soberness and truth, but made the admission that the Messiah had not been recognized by the world which he came to save. The apostles repeated the guesses of the people. Some said he was John the Baptist. Some said he was a new Elijah. Others saw in him the tenderness of Jeremiah and thought that he had come, and many looked upon him as a prophet. The light had shone in the darkness, but the darkness comprehended it not. We can only imagine the disappointment as the Savior directed the second question to the apostles when he said, But whom say ye that I am? The Savior needed to convert them, and they needed to convert the world. The answer came. Peter had the immortal honor of giving utterance for them all. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This answer came from the senior of the apostles. The apostles now recognized in Jesus of Nazareth the promised Messiah of their nation and a son of David. But he was more than this, even the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This confirmation of Peter was also Jesus' testimony of himself, a promise that he who so acknowledge are blessed when we are led by the Spirit of God. Here was the promise that his church founded on the rock of inspired revelation should remain unconquered by all evil and of hell. Here was the conferring upon his church the power to open and shut, to bind and loose, and the promise that the keys of the priesthood righteously exercised on earth would be ratified in heaven. God bless us with faith in Christ. The faith... Christ stressed when he appeared to the eleven. Thomas, you'll recall, wanted proof, wanted to personally see what had been described to him. The Savior said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I have not seen, but I know. I have always known. But now I have received a greater assurance and pray that I will always know that this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it has been restored in our day, that God is a reality, 
I know that he lives. That man was created in his image and likeness. I know that Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, is the Christ, the Son of God. And that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. I know that he lives now, today, and that salvation is only through him. That he will bring us back, if worthy, to the presence of God, our eternal Father. I pray the divine spark will develop into a firm knowledge and conviction in all of us. And that through personal revelation that we will know that Jesus is the Son of the living God. That President Kimball is the only man on earth who holds and exercises in righteousness the keys of the kingdom and is the mouthpiece of God on earth. Bless us with heavenly inspiration to know and to be prepared for his coming. For he will come as King of kings to reign forever and ever. I'd so testify to you as I pray in his holy name. Amen. We Latter-day Saints have a divine message for the world. It is that God has spoken again from the heavens in these last days and has given us once more the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a great new revelation of his will. Are you surprised that God would speak in these times? Are we who live today less important to him than those who lived 2,000 years ago? Is he a respecter of persons? Is not the same gospel required to save us as was needed in the days of Peter and Paul? There is only one gospel, and there is only one Savior, and he gave us only one straight and narrow way to salvation, although unfortunately few there be that find it. Over the centuries, there has been a great departure from the original Christian teachings, resulting in a multiplicity of creeds and denominations. But Christ himself is not divided, not the true Christ. This was fully explained by the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Corinthians and upbraided them for the divisions which existed among them. Is Christ divided, he demanded of them? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? So he challenged them and then continued, Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ, thus showing the ruptures which had broken out among these people whom Paul had converted only a short time before. But this was one of the symptoms of those times, evidence that even in his day Christianity was beginning to disintegrate. It is evident from the scriptures that through the foreknowledge of God, the ancient apostles were shown in advance that Christianity would be splintered, that its unity for which Christ had prayed would be destroyed, and that thus would come a general falling away from the original truth. But the Lord was not content to abandon a shattered Christianity. He was still determined to save mankind if they would obey him. Therefore, knowing in advance that a falling away would take place, he provided for a restoration of the original truth in the latter days. This was voiced through the Apostle Peter as one day he discoursed upon the second coming of the Lord. He explained that the Lord's second coming would be preceded in the latter days by a restoration of the gospel which would be so extensive as to return all that God had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning of the world. This we read in the third chapter of Acts. But how was this to be accomplished? Do the scriptures tell us? Indeed they do, 
for they say that the gospel would be brought back to earth by an angel flying through the midst of heaven in the hour of God's judgment, that this truth might be preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But the scripture also says that a second angel would come as part of this great new revelation of God. It even identified him by name and said that this second heavenly personage would be Elijah of old, who was taken into heaven without tasting death. Remarkable, isn't it? We testify that the first angel has come already and that he committed the gospel to the prophet Joseph Smith a century and a half ago. We Latter-day Saints are the custodians of that gospel, and we are presently taking it to all the free world. But what about this second angel? If the first one brought the gospel, what purpose was there in the coming of the second one? Why should Elijah be sent to the earth again in these last days? The prophet Malachi explained, Elijah, he said, would come to earth before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is a passage of scripture which has greatly puzzled the Bible scholars. They cannot tell what it means. Many have guessed and speculated, but none have really known. What does this scripture mean? Why was Elijah to come back to earth? Obviously, there was some family relationship involved since he was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. What could it mean? The significance of that scripture was not made known until after the first angel had restored the gospel. In fact, it was the restored gospel that opened our minds to the purpose of Elijah's coming. Its great meaning was that salvation may come to all who have lived on the earth, even the dead as far back as the days of Adam, if they will only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the living and the dead may be saved. But how can this be? Jesus explained that he is God of both the living and the dead, and that in fact even the dead are alive unto him. However, he has but one gospel, and since both living and dead are alike unto him, both living and dead must be saved by the same gospel principles. The Lord is no respecter of persons. Salvation comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance from sin, and baptism by immersion in water for the remission of sins performed by one in authority. But can the dead comply with these terms? Yes, they can if they will, but how is it possible? Peter taught that while Christ's body lay in the tomb after the crucifixion, his eternal spirit went to the realm of the dead, who were alive and alert in a spirit existence. Each person was still himself. Each could listen and learn, and so they did. For Jesus taught them his gospel just as he had taught it here on earth. Read the third chapter of Peter's first epistle. Peter further said, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Would Jesus have preached to them if they could not hear and understand? Would he have preached faith and repentance if they were not able to believe and repent? Is not the Savior practical and realistic? But what about baptism and other saving ordinances? Paul now comes to our aid. He made it known that in the early church there existed an arrangement whereby the living could be baptized for and in behalf of their dead, and thus would baptism be made available to the departed. But who can do this, and by what authority? 
By what means may we identify the dead so that we may know for whom this work is done? That is why Elijah came in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. And we testify that he has come, that he appeared in the Kirtland Temple on April 3, 1836, 140 years ago to this very day. His coming was to teach us, the living, that the dead may be saved and that we are to be instruments in the hands of God for helping to bring this about. In this way, his coming turns our hearts to our dead kindred. The dead now hear the gospel in the realm where they live, and knowing that their saving ordinances must be performed vicariously by us, their hearts of necessity are turned to us, hoping that we will do this work for them. So Elijah's mission is being fulfilled. We Latter-day Saints have undertaken our share of this great work. We have built holy temples in which these vicarious ordinances are performed. We have established the finest genealogical library in the world where we may research the identifying information for our dead kindred. But even so, there are many who yet do not comprehend this doctrine. Neither do they understand their responsibility in it. Be it known that each living person is responsible to assist in the salvation of his own deceased relatives. Our own salvation is largely dependent upon it. We cannot be made perfect without our ancestors, and they cannot be made perfect without us. And why? The requirement of the Lord is that each couple must be married for eternity, and each child must be bound to his or her own parents by the power of the holy priesthood. This process must be carried back into the past as far as we can obtain genealogical information to justify it. This is in addition to the baptisms we may perform for our dead. If we fail to do this work, we place our own salvation in question. What is our obligation then? Each one of us, if we pretend to obey the gospel at all, must search out our dead and have these saving ordinances performed for them. Many suppose that they are discharging their responsibilities by simply, quote, going to the temple, end quote. But that is not wholly true. We must go to the temple, of course, and often. If we do not as yet have the records of our own dead kindred, then while we search for them, by all means let us help others with theirs. But be it understood that if we go to the temple and not for our own dead, we are performing only a part of our duty because we are also required to go there specifically to save our own dead relatives and bind the various generations together by the power of the holy priesthood. We must disabuse our minds of the idea that merely going to the temple discharges our full responsibility because it does not. That is not enough. We must get down to specifics and do the work for our own dead progenitors. God holds each of us responsible for saving our own kindred, specifically our own. President Joseph Fielding Smith, discoursing on this subject at one time, said, It matters not what else we have been called to do, or what position we occupy, or how faithfully in other ways we have labored in the Church. None are exempt from the great obligation of performance of temple work for the dead. It is required of the apostle as well as of the humblest elder. Place or distinction or long service in the church, in the mission fields, the stakes of Zion, or where or how else it may have been, will not entitle one to disregard the salvation of one's dead. Some may feel that if they pay their tithing, attend to their regular meetings and other duties, give of their substance to feed the poor, perchance spend one or two years preaching in the world, 
that they are absolved from further duty. But the greatest and grandest duty of all is to labor for the dead. We may and should do all these other things for which reward will be given, but if we neglect the weightier privilege and commandment, notwithstanding all our other good works, we shall find ourselves under severe condemnation. So spoke President Joseph Fielding Smith. When we say that we must do work specifically for our own bloodlines, what do we mean? We mean that first we will do the genealogical research to identify our own particular progenitors and their families. Then we are to go to the temple for the ordinance work required for these our own specific relatives who are dead and whom we have identified by our genealogical research. We are to be sealed in a specific priesthood line to our own specific forefathers, and they must specifically be sealed to us. But remember, we cannot thus bind the generations together in our own bloodlines unless we specifically identify our people first. Hence the overpowering need for a well-directed genealogical program in each family. I hope you will forgive me for being so specific here, but I do not know any other way of specifically explaining the specific points I specifically have in mind. <laughs> the Prophet Joseph Smith said that it is necessary that those who have lived before us and those who come after us should have salvation in common with us. He said that without these ordinances provided in the temples, neither we nor our dead can receive our eternal advancement. Everyone who wishes to receive ultimate salvation, the Prophet Joseph said, must go through all the ordinances for each one of them, that is, our kindred, separately the same as for himself from baptism to ordination, and receive all the keys and powers of the priesthood, the same as for himself. And then he said, If you will receive it, this is the spirit of Elijah, that we redeem our dead and connect ourselves with our fathers and seal up our dead to come forth in the first resurrection. And then he added, How are the saints to become saviors on Mount Zion? He answered his own question, as he said, by building their temples, erecting baptismal fonts, and going forth and receiving all ordinances in behalf of all their progenitors who are dead. If we believe in the restoration of the gospel at all, we must believe also in the mission of Elijah. We declare that he has come to earth and delivered the keys of his ministry to the Prophet Joseph Smith. As a result of his labors, the hearts of both the fathers and the children are now turning to each other, and this vital work is being done. But each of us must do our part for our own deceased relatives. It is so essential that it must be given a high priority in our daily lives and that we may give it this great priority as my humble prayer in the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We welcome the four new members of the First Quorum of the Seventy and assure them of our love, our complete sustaining and acceptance of their appointments, and shall do our best to be cooperative with them in their work. I read you an experience of Elijah, which I find in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, 
And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so. And when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? When Elijah knew that he was in communication with the Lord, he told him of his great trouble and why he was hiding in the cave. He then received instruction as to just what to do. 2,700 years later, we have had restored to us the means by which we can hear the voice of the Lord. As Elijah discovered, it will not be in the thunder or in the whirlwind or in lightning or in any spectacular display. It will come as to Elijah in a still, small voice. I do not pretend to list all of the ways in which the Lord may choose to speak to his chosen prophet. We could name personal appearances, voices out of a cloud, and, of course, the one just mentioned. But to the member of the Church, intent on keeping the commandments, needing personal guidance in his daily affairs, pleading for the life of his wife or his child who is desperately ill, the Lord has indicated many times that the answer will come by the still, small voice. How may I then know how to receive and what to expect? First, the Lord will speak by his Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost. In speaking to the Twelve in 1829, the Lord said, in referring to the words he had given, For it is my voice which speaketh them unto you, for they are given by my Spirit unto you. Later, in 1832, he instructed the elders, I who speak even by the voice of my Spirit. It is important that we learn to understand when the Lord speaks to us through his Spirit, for it is certain that he will do this to the righteous and the deserving. Secondly, it will come into the mind of the recipient. For example, the prophet Enos was praying to the Lord and described his experience thus, And while I was thus struggling in the Spirit, behold, the voice of the Lord came into my mind again, saying, What he told Enos is not my immediate concern, but the means used to tell him is here illustrated. The word of the Lord comes into the mind. Thirdly, let us now listen to the Lord's instruction to Oliver Cowdery, who wanted to translate and was told he might do it. Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. And then further to declare its true power, if he should have that happen, now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Here, then, we have added to what Enos said, mind and heart, not the heart that beats, but the heart which means feeling. Oliver Cowdery tried but failed and was told, Behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind, that you, and then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. But if it be not right, you shall have no such feelings, but you shall have a stupor of thought that shall cause you to forget the thing which is wrong. Therefore, you cannot write that which is sacred, save it be given you from me. And I might say you might not think it to it the same, in the same manner. Causing the bosom to burn is another way of saying that feeling is a big part of the process of revelation. Fourthly, in the terrible rebuke given by Nephi to his brothers concerning their murderous intentions, he said, you are swift to do iniquity, but slow to remember the Lord your God. You have seen an angel, and he spake unto you. Yea, you have heard his voice from time to time. And he has spoken unto you in a still, small voice, but ye were past feeling that ye could not feel his words. Wherefore, he has spoken unto you like unto the voice of thunder, which did cause the earth to shake as if it were to divide asunder. I repeat, he has spoken in a still, small voice, but you were past feeling.
that she could not feel his words. Why did, not, why did he not say, you are past hearing, that she could not hear his words? Because the assurance comes through feeling. If I am to receive revelation from the Lord, I must be in harmony with him, keeping his commandments. Then, as needed, according to his wisdom, his word will come into my mind, through my thoughts, accompanied by a feeling in the region of my bosom. It is a feeling which cannot be described, but the nearest word we have is burn or burning. Accompanying this always is a feeling of peace, a further witness that what one heard is right. Once one recognizes this burning, this feeling, this peace, one need never be drawn astray in his daily life or in the guidance he may receive. He may also know that this revelation is in harmony with the revealed principles, that if this revelation is in harmony with the revealed principles, that it is right, and if in disharmony, it is not from the Lord. The Lord does not contradict himself. It is vital to everybody to know that no one will ever receive revelation that is contrary to the word given to the living, living prophet. The application of this principle will prevent many of the frustrations experienced in daily life. Most of us here have had this experience many times, but there is a great host of our children who have not and who need to be led to understand. When do we teach this principle? We become alert to situations which point the need for its application. On an occasion when a small boy got angry at a playmate, he came into the house stating that he would never play with that boy again and would not let him even in the house. The mother, a wise woman, stopped what she was doing, not later, but that very moment, and said, Son, we need to go into the bedroom and kneel down and talk to Heavenly Father. There she explained that the boy needed to learn how to forgive and told him he should pray about it. She prayed first and then helped him to start. When they came from the bedroom, the boy looked up at his mother and said, I guess I'll play with him again. I think he can come here. You might say, answer to prayer? Yes. But it was also the beginning of that boy hearing the voice of the Lord, and that's important. There are many times as our youth grow when they will need to seek the Spirit to know how to act or what to do. When, all, when do all parents start to teach them? Now? Home evenings? Yes. But far more important, when, they, when the need is on them, at the moment they need it, then if they understand that if righteous, the voice of the Lord comes into their minds with a certain feeling in the breast, accompanied by a peace, they are receiving the word of the Lord to them. By this means, the prophet Joseph Smith received revelation, as have those who succeeded him as presidents of the church. And by this means, the church keeps in harmony with the Lord's will through President Spencer W. Kimball. By this means, we may eventually find our way into eternal life. And I pray that we may understand and bear my witness of its truth and of the fact that President Kimball is a prophet in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.